And now that I have your attention, I'll begin. Welcome to the Jejun Institute. We are purveyors of nonchalance and a myriad of innovative products designed to fill the void. It is a very unique person who finds themselves in the chair in which you sit. You've all been selected as agents of nonchalance. Behind this world, there is a world which has been hidden from you. It's so, so cool. And you are a key to unlocking our vision. You must find Clara! Quite an elaborate hoax. Such a nice story. Thrilling. <laughs> I'm sorry, what do you mean, hoax? This is an international conspiracy. Who's behind all of this? Guys, we have to look for Clara. Hey, it's me, Clara. Thank goodness you're here. I need you to find me. What is our greatest fear? I don't even know what I'm doing right now. Deep down in our core. I'm like running around the city playing some secret game with a bunch of strangers. To forget who we are. For the first time since I was very young, I felt like there was magic. Maybe I could be a part of that. Who am I? Who am I? Who am I? You say that it's a game, a prank. We're watching you. Well, what if it's real? Clara must be free. This whole game, it's a distraction. We are close. We're close, I can feel it. Guys, it's Clara. Hello, listeners. This is Killer Casting, and I'm Lisa Zambetti. I am a casting director in Los Angeles, probably best known for my work on Criminal Minds. But I'm very happy to say that a project that I worked on last year is finally going to see the light of day, and that is FX's Reservation Dogs. I'm so proud of this pilot and the series. It's written by Sterling Harjo and Taika Waititi, directed by Taika Waititi, and it's about four kids growing up on the res, as they say, in Oklahoma. And I had the pleasure of going to Oklahoma and doing a huge search for indigenous talent. And when you meet indigenous actors, you don't just meet the actor, you meet their entire families. And what an honor to meet this community and find a couple of real, real rock stars that made it into the pilot. But with me today to talk about the best things we've seen in 2020 and the things we're looking forward to see in 2021 are my sexy beasts. Beast number one, please introduce yourself. Who, me? Yes. <laughs> okay, sure. So, hey, it's Brian A. Hill coming to you live from Los Angeles, California. And beast number two, please in- introduce yourself. Oh, well, uh, considering Brian's intro, g'day, mate. It's uh, Dean from Down Under. Hey, you guys. Good to see Hi, you. Hi, Lisa. Hello. And you, so might I- be the, yeah. you might be the first person who ever said it was a pleasure going to Oklahoma. That might be now, like, now, I am a huge fan of Oklahoma, and that is not true. As a, as a Texan, I can probably attest okay. to the lack of quality in that terrible state. Well, I, I You can just cut this bit, Dean. Yeah, I disagree. And uh, on Real Crime Profile, we have a huge listenership in Oklahoma. <laughs> so uh, bring, it, ta- let him, bring your no. comments. I don't care. Please don't. So, hey, guys, we are into the holiday. By the time this airs, it'll probably be post-Christmas, just about time for New Year. And, of course, lots of reflection upon this very strange year. But I don't want to talk about all that crap. I just want to talk about the things that we saw this year. Of course, I'm so lucky that I can work from home and I have a lot of time that I can stream things and watch things 
in years past, Brian, I don't know about you or Dean, but in years past, I hardly ever go to the movies. I usually wait till they're on Netflix or on demand. I just don't because when you're working in casting, often you're doing evening sessions or you do work all through the night sometimes and I don't get to go out. And certainly this year, nobody got to go out. So going to the movies, it's like a work thing. I find it more and more difficult to enjoy something as an entertainment just because I'm seeped in entertainment every day, all day as part of my job. That kind of stinks, but I hear what you're saying for sure. Dean, what about you? Do you and April go on your date nights and wine and dine and go to a a movie? Well, uh, in spite of what I said on the Christmas episode about April, her taste for terrible Christmas movies, other than that, we are very highly compatible when it comes to movies. So yes, we do enjoy a movie and I do enjoy going to the cinema as opposed to watching it. Uh, I've got a home theater system, and but there's just something special about going to the cinema. Although these days I go with a sense of trepidation, which is if some idiot next to me is on his mobile phone throughout the whole movie, we are going to have a thing, right? It's going to be a thing, you know, (laughs) we're going to, that is something up with which I will not put. Yeah, it's good. I I love to go and see a film the way it was intended to be on a big screen with great sound and in a group. Yeah, the only time I really want to see something on the big screen is if it's a big epic thing that you're going to get your money's worth as far as (laughs) bang and CGI for your buck. But otherwise, I'm quite happy to watch them on the small screen. But let's talk about the best things we watched in 2020. And wow, that could be a lot of different things. What does best mean? What is cinematically the best thing you saw? What is cast-wise? That could mean so many things. And I leave that to you to define and defend. So, Beasts, what... uh, We'll go around Robin like we did last time. Tell me the best thing that you saw in 2020. Okay, so my number one pick was this little limited series that I don't know if it got a ton of pub, but it was on AMC. It was uh, Jason Siegel's Dispatches from Elsewhere. Whoa, I never heard of that. It was it was amazing. And it was uh, it was with Richard E. Grant, uh, Andre 3000, Sally Field is in it, and an actress by the name of Eve Lindley, a trans female who is a romantic lead to Jason Siegel. And the thing that was so remarkable about the show was that, yes, her being a trans female was part of her storyline, but the friendship and then ultimately the romance that evolved between the two characters was just kind of taken as an everyday thing, which I thought was a really remarkable and very sweet thing. And it's based on a, a documentary, like a murder mystery on a grand scale, but it's not a murder mystery. It's like a hide and seek kind of thing where people are following clues. They work in groups. They find clues to find this ultimate answer. And then they all have a celebration. It was a real thing. And he used that as a dramatic device to tell the story of these four people who ended up being together in this group to figure out this citywide like mystery. scavenger hunt or one of these sort of things. But just, yeah, but but like the production value of the thing was just immense. Like the idea of it was immense. And Richard E. Grant was fantastic in it, playing this quasi-chorus narrator, tour guide of the thing. And to follow these people, it really made me believe in magic. It was like he was setting us up, Jason was setting us up, believe in this, in a real world where magic exists, which was fantastic. The only complaint that I had about the entire thing was the final episode of this 10 episode series. It became very kind of self-referential and self-indulgent. It was a kind of about Jason Siegel and his journey. It went away completely from the magic storytelling that he had created in the first nine episodes. And so it it fell flat to me. I mean, I, I wish that it almost had stopped at nine, but he kind of had to get his his reason for telling the story in the first place as an episode, which I just left me kind of wanting. But all in all, I think Jason Siegel is just absolutely so underrated as a storyteller, like as a writer and performer. I think he's just top notch and this is a gem. I mean, I, I really, I can't recommend it. Now, was enough. Eve Lindley in Transparent? I'm trying to... She might have can't been. can't get into my IMDb Pro right now, but because she's wonderful in Transparent. And that's great. What? A, that's a great... I, I don't think I heard of that show at all. So that is a really great 
wrecked. I don't think AMC knew what to do with it. And so they really promoted it in a kind of half-ass way, I think, not to take their inventory or anything. Okay, Dean, so what do you have for us? What's one of the best things that you've seen all year? Okay, I'm going to open with uh, a great, tight, taut, old-school war drama called A Greyhound, starring Tom Hanks. Elizabeth Shue has a small role in the opening, and really the only person that I really knew from the movie was Stephen Graham, who might be known to people as Al Capone in Boardwalk Empire, and also he had a fantastic small role in HBO's Band of Brothers, which of course was produced by Tom and Spielberg, having followed on from Tom starring in Saving Private Ryan. So this is a movie about a US captain shepherding a merchant marine ships across the Atlantic to England. and 50 souls. What you did yesterday, got us to today. It's not enough. leveraging his unabashed love of military themed kind of stories and it's great one of the things about this that well not one of the things the main thing that struck me was how tight and taut this film is it's only 94 minutes in total the first seven minutes are given over to some exposition with him and his wife in hawaii and then you jump cut onto the ship and that's where you stay so it's just all about being on the ship as i was watching it even i was struck by how tight the nexus was between the screenplay the filming the direction and just how claustrophobic and fantastic it was so i was actually surprised when i went to imdb to research this that when i looked it up i thought oh wow who wrote this it was written by tom hanks by himself i don't know of him has he written anything before i mean i know he produced that thing you do and he's produced lots of other things i don't recall him actually being the I writer no i didn't look any further but certainly uh, if this is his first effort then holy cow he's a hell of a writer because the screenplay is it's so sparse there's not a waste just of so we all know tom hanks actually wrote that thing you do so did he wrote uh, and direct it oh he did oh, oh i s- I stand corrected. Well, I knew that he produced, I think I knew he directed it. It's one of my favorite movies. But anyway, okay, thank you. Go on, Dean. But he adapted this. He adapted it from a book. And when you look at it, it looks like a sort of a modern film that is set back in the 50s, right? In the same way of Nolan's Dunkirk. So yes, it's got a modern look, but we know it's set back in the day. And in the same way, this film is, it's clearly a modern film, but it it just feels and smells like something that was made in the 50s. And when I looked at it, he adapted it from a book called The Good Shepherd by C.S. Forrester, which was written in in the 50s. (laughs) So I was like, oh, okay, that makes sense. And by the way, C.S. Forrester wrote uh, a book in 1931 called The African Queen, which of course was later made by uh, Houston. So it's sort of old school, new school, but it's just a brilliant, tight, taut thriller. You're on the edge of your seat the whole way. And in the same way that you don't need to know anything about baseball to enjoy Field of Dreams, you don't need to know anything about Wall Street to enjoy uh, The Big Short. If you're the person who goes, I'm not into war dramas, it doesn't matter. It's not about that. It's about the human element of Tom 
as this, uh, you know, the good shepherd trying to shepherd these uh, merchant marine ships across the Atlantic. He's intensely religious and there's elements that, that overlay that. And of course, what was the name of the German uh, U-boats that were hunting those merchant marines? They were the Wolf Pack. And the book was The Good Shepherd. So Tom is the shepherd trying to get these sheep across uh, literally defenseless. So it's all on him. And it's just, oh, edgy seat stuff. That's awesome. That sounds like a wreck that my dad would really like. Okay, so I'm going to take it from here. I'm going to launch right into a show that has gotten many accolades and I'm going to add my voice to it. It's called I May Destroy You. It is just a groundbreaking, gender bending, assumption wrecking show created by the amazingly talented British actress and writer Michaela Cole. And she wrote 12 half hour episodes and she directed some of them too and she stars in it. And it's beyond a coming of age story. It's it's beyond anything that you'd ever, you know, I lived in London twice and I can can completely understand the society that these characters are living in, even though we lived there 10 to 20 years apart, <laughs> these so-called millennials. But it's, I love London because there's such a, a pulse to the city. And this show is about young people trying to navigate London and also navigate this mystery that the lead character is trying to unspool that she has a memory of being roofied and date raped in a bathroom stall of a pub. And so it's all about her trying to deal with that, trying to deal with remembering it, trying to deal with pursuing who did it to her, but also how to handle being a celebrated victim, how to handle her newfound celebrity once she comes out about um, what happened to her. And it's just remarkable. It's something that I think everybody should watch and understand that she's definitely pushing the boundaries of what consent is and who gets to consent under what circumstances. And it's really surprising the the places that she goes, especially the, the finale on how she chooses finally how to deal with what to do with her offender, how, how she can deal with him in her mind and make peace with it all, if in fact she can. So I 100% endorse... I May Destroy You. It's just an incredible, incredible ride. We're watching our favorite German TV show. Science. Animation at, at the, the same, same time. time. Oh, where'd you get that? Can't remember. Listen to the sounds and I followed the beats again. All white walls, I see all white walls. I just smashed your phone. I don't know. How did last night end? Sirens, man down, police on the move again. Flashbacks. Yeah, I see him a bit. I caught the wave, then I caught the preacher sleeping with the devil. My friend is stressed. Listen to her talk. Make her feel good. Better talk, money talk, girls talk, TikTok. Surround yourself with people who affirm you. Are you going to miss me? Don't like this sort of conversation. Are we boyfriend and girlfriend? Could you say yes? Wouldn't be a conversation. Is there a reason why you haven't told him about the assault? He's an Italian drug lord. I'm joking. folks dean here with a request if you're enjoying the show could you please pop over to your listening app of choice give us a nice big 1100 star rating thumbs up and if there's anyone you can think of that you believe would enjoy the pod as you are please share that link with them because the more the merrier right Brian, what's next up for you? My next one, it was a FX show exclusively on Hulu. So it didn't air on FX. But it was a show called Devs by Alex Garland, who was the writer-director of Ex Machina and Annihilation. Very sci-fi. It's an eight-part series. And Nick Offerman is the lead in this. Alison Pill is in it. There's just great actress, Sonoya Mizuno, who's been in some stuff, but she's the lead. And it's basically the story of this computer engineer who's investigating the disappearance and then 
we've come to find out death of her boyfriend who was just brought into a secretive development division, hence the name Devs, in this giant company that is made to replicate Google. And Nick Offerman is the head of this company. I won't give it away, but but basically we see through flashbacks, like the thing that is in development, the thing that is driving him is something otherworldly that is nearly incomprehensible. And it deals with loss and regret and making amends. And in Garland's movies, there's this ominous kind of noise soundtrack that he uses to kind of really ratchet up the drama and the tension and the, the sense of foreboding that's also in this show. I will also say Zach Grenier, who is a infamous character actor, like he was, he was the boss in Fight Club who gets bled all over. He plays the ultimate security guy. He is just ruthless. It's a really chilling performance. But Nick Offerman has this, there's such a beauty to him that I think we're starting to see in his projects post Parks and Recreation that really come out in this show. One of my really good friends who I talked with the show about, she hated it. My One of my best friends, he and his wife, they hated it. And I think it's one of those shows where there is no middle ground. You either love it or you hate it, which I'm fine with. And I absolutely loved it. I was like, it was one of those shows where they're hour-long episodes. And I could have really sat down and just knocked out episode after episode. But realizing that I had only eight, okay, I'm going to conserve and as, and take as much time with these as as I possibly can. It was really a dynamite show. Great. Nick Offerman, I think, you know, we cast him, Emily Schreber, and I cast him in a movie called The Hero that starred Sam Elliott. And you, he's unrecognizable in the role. And it, he's wonderful in it. So yes, his post Parks and Rec life is wonderful. The only complaint that I have about the show, and this is such a ticky tacky thing, the wig that they have him in for the show oh, is fucking that's the awful. worst though that that can really it's, ruin things it is it is the worst oh god it's terrible it's terrible yeah but i mean but his performance is just same with alison pill alison pill the whole i mean i really love this show like the casting up and down is just really great and the story is great okay dino your turn okay well uh, there are a lot of great things that I saw this year, but I want to step back. I've got some notes and it's like, I want to talk about this, 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 and this, but I don't want to lose these two. And I'm going to cheat and put these two together because they're both documentaries and they're both on Netflix. And I feel like I'm going Netflix, Netflix. However, here in Australia, we haven't had cinema the entire year. So we've not been able to go to the cinema. And in fact, I was thinking back and I realized that the last time that I was actually in a cinema Lisa was in Los Angeles in 2019 in November when I had lunch with yourself and uh, and Laura from Real Crime Profile in um, in LA and I went to the Ace Theatre in Hollywood which was amazing. If you live in Los Angeles and you haven't been to the Ace Theatre, shame on you because it is just a treasure. And I went there to see Blade Runner because uh, the original because Blade Runner the original was set in Los Angeles in 2019 and I happened to be in Los Angeles in 2019 and they had a special showing of Blade Runner which was sort of hosted by one of your famous movie critics I don't recall his name I'm sorry and I saw the movie there in its glory on this fantastic screen with about 1200 patrons and afterwards they had a Q&A uh, with an another guy and also the actress who played the snake lady in Blade Runner Zora and her name is oh Joanne Cassidy yeah Joanna Cassidy and uh, I even got a selfie with her at, at, at the foot of the stage afterwards. So it was amazing. And then I had not seen in November of last year already Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And so I got the opportunity to go and see it for the first time ever in Tarantino Cinema, the New Beverly in Hollywood. I saw Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, in Hollywood, by Tarantino, in his cinema. So that was fantastic. How so, meta is that? Wonderful. I know, right? Yeah. So that, that that's, oh, okay, yes, I'm a giant nerd. All right. So uh, that long introduction is to the fact that I haven't been in the cinema since then for a, a more than a year later in Australia. So I'm going to give some love to a couple of documentaries. Uh, one is called My Octopus Teacher. Have either of you seen that? Yep. It was on my, my honorable mention list for sure. 
Oh, how beautiful is that? It's just the premise and the description doesn't do it justice, does it, Brian? No, it really doesn't. I mean, and, and I, like I've said in previous podcasts, I am the I'm definitely the curmudgeon, I think, of of the podcast. And and yet, I mean, like, it's just captivating. You're absolutely uh, right. Craig Foster is a guy in South Africa. He's a filmmaker and he burns out. He says filmmaker, but I think he's predominantly uh, doing uh, corporate corporate work. Like editor. Yeah. And he burns out and he decides that he's going to free dive every day. So he's quits work and he's just going to go snorkeling slash free diving every day of the year. And he meets an octopus, which sounds stupid, but it is just the most beautiful, heartwarming tale. <laughs> you can't describe it, can you, Brian? You've either got to watch it or not watch it, right? Yeah, you really do have to watch it. And I, I mean, and when you try to describe the story and describe like this guy's journey, it sounds kind of silly. And I get that. You just, you have to watch it. It's such a simple and beautiful story. Yeah. It is the epitome of heartwarming. So tough to describe, but it's only what an hour or a little bit over an hour long. So just honestly, folks, just dial it in and watch it. The first couple of minutes you'll be struck. He's Craig is a, a nice guy, a wonderful guy. The journey that he takes with this octopus is just amazing. All right. Moving on from that, another underwater film, because you've seen on my profile on, on the website, you'll know I'm kind of obsessed with the water. A fantastic documentary called Last Breath. This is the story of a guy called Chris Lemons. He's Irish-born, but he's a commercial diver, saturation diver, working in the North Sea. And he was diving on this particular day at 90 metres. So you've got a ship on the surface, you've got a bell that they lower down to near the bottom of the, of the sea, and then divers come out of the bell. And the ship has these thrusters all around it, and they use GPS to keep it over the place that the divers are. And they had a catastrophic failure of the dynamic positioning system which resulted in him the the ship being dragged off of course so basically he's at 90 meters of depth with a big umbilical going back to the bell and it gets ripped out of him so he's at 90 meters and he's got when the umbilical goes that carries his air supply radio power lights and the suit heating so he's got eight minutes of air now his dive buddy has to try and find him in the dark, and he eventually does 40 minutes later. But if, if you do cow. the maths, right, 40 minus 8 doesn't work, right? It's not a plot spoiler to say that in spite of that, he survives. But what they've done is they've combined the original um, helmet camera footage with some recreated audio, live interviews uh, with both of the guys, and so on. It's If you enjoyed something like Touching the Void or any of those incredible, you know, survival Survival stories, movies, yeah. Yeah, you will love this. And even if you don't, I imagine that you will love it anyway. In the show notes, I'm going to put a link to an interview with Chris that was conducted by my cave diving buddy, uh, Richard Harry Harris, on his podcast, Real Risk. Some of you may know Harry. He was the Aussie anesthesiologist who helped rescue the Thai soccer team from the, the wild boars from Thailand uh, a year ago. And wow. they get in depth on how he possibly survived. It's really good. It's literally hold your breath, sorry, kind of stuff. And get this right, in a six degrees of separation kind of moment, a few months ago, I went and visited some family uh, including my niece. And she just returned from England and uh, she had her new husband who was English. And I said to him, oh, what do you do for work? He said, oh, well, I'm looking for a new job now. I'm here in Australia. But he said, I was a commercial diver back in England. I said, wow, I just watched um, Last Breath on Netflix. And he said, uh, uh, yeah. Oh, you mean Chris Lemons? He said, I dived with that guy because he was a commercial saturation diver in London or in England. I'm like, get out of here. So he says, yeah, no, he's a really good guy. He said, I wasn't there when it happened. I came on with the team after, but he'd gone back to diving, Chris, the guy that was featured in the doco. And he said, yeah, he's just the loveliest guy, just a really calm, cool sort of dude. So, uh, Man, I guess you'd have to be to survive 40 minutes without... Oh, man. Oh, my gosh. Well, that's awesome. You know, most of the docs that I watch, as you know... Dean are true crime, horrific, horrendous docs that don't end well. So to have recommendations of something that sounds uplifting is very welcome. So that's awesome. 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 Okay. So the next thing I want to recommend is a show on Hulu called The 
Great. And The Great refers to Catherine the Great. And this is a satire about the young Catherine the Great who comes from Prussia to become the Empress of Russia and is married to a thoroughly horrible husband in Peter the Third. And so Catherine is played by a wonderful Elle Fanning, who is just so innocent in the beginning, wide-eyed and innocent, and she has no idea what she's getting into by marrying Peter III, who is played by Nicholas Holt, who is just nothing short of a merry sociopath in this. I mean, he's just so horrible, but and he's that guy just is so lo- amazing. He's amazing as it. He's he's monstrous. He's he's just your worst imperial frat bra that you can imagine but he's still so likable it's that's what makes it an incredible performance and her sort of coming to understand her situation and to find a clever way to get out of it and do what's best for Russia that she's completely fallen in love with it's amazing and it's created by Tony McNamara based on his 2008 play and do you know what other film that he wrote he co-wrote is The Favorite, 2018's The Favorite with Olivia Coleman and Rachel Weitz, which I love the film. It's all bustles and corsets and wigs and snuff boxes, but also just a withering wit. So I highly recommend it. It's gorgeous to look at, The Great. It's got all the costumes and the bells and whistles and just the, what do you call it when there's too much of something? Um... Opulence? Opulence. We had this excessive opulence. Uh, So that's wonderful to watch. But just the repartee is also great, strong female performance by Elle Fanning. So Brian, you watched it? I have not watched it. My commenting on Nicholas Holt is his body of work. The range that he has demonstrated in the various projects, like from Mad Max to the X-Men series to just even the clips I've seen of this and the Tolkien movie. He really is a, just a phenomenal talent. Yeah. He's the real deal. He's that incredible. Guy. All right. Well, it's your turn, Brian. What do you have? So this is my third and last. And I got a, I was really conflicted about even having this on the list of three. It's a Netflix movie. It's a movie this time, not a TV show. But after our foray into Fargo season four, I started kind of looking around and landed on I'm Thinking of Ending Things, starring Jesse Buckley, but also two other Fargo alums, uh, Jesse Plemons and David Thewlis uh, are in this, along with Tony Collette. I really love Charlie Kaufman going back to, of course, being John Malkovich and adaptation. And Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind is just a heartbreaking work. One film of his that I had a negative response to was uh, Synecdoche, New York, which is a huge, sprawling film with Philip Seymour Hoffman kind of as a creator. And it's a, I need to go back and watch it. I think in the same way, I feel like I need to go back and watch this one as well. So basically, Jesse Buckley is a young woman. She goes with her new boyfriend. They've been dating. We get the sense it's a few months, but she goes with her new boyfriend to his parents' secluded farm. And basically, they're trapped there during a snowstorm. And time just kind of like morphs and changes. The parents appear as very, very old and sickly at times. And then minutes later, they're young. So you have the sense that this is kind of like a fever dream that's happening. It's a surreal piece of work where things are constantly moving and and facts are changing. Jake, my boyfriend. It's snowing. Winter is coming in. We have a real connection. A rare and intense attachment. I've never experienced anything like it. I'm thinking of ending things. Huh? What? Did you say something? I don't think so. Weird. I'm visiting Jake's parents for the first time. He hasn't been my boyfriend for very long. They really are looking forward to meeting you. I think of ending things. Hello? We're here. Oh, hi. Oh, it's all wet. Here they come. Jeff has told us so much about you. He's told me so much about both of you, too. And you came anyway? (laughs) Jake. 
tells me you're studying quantum psychics. Ooh, physics. Really? <laughs> but there's just something profoundly wrong here. Are you okay? Yeah. If you'd like to hook up and obsess with other like-minded folks who enjoy pod-like killer casting, who love to talk about the shows that they're binging, chat about the episodes and all the shows we cover, please go find us at the usual socials of Facebook, Twitter, and Insta, and I will see you there. Jesse Buckley's character, her name is constantly changing. It's different. And you're not exactly sure from whose perspective this story is being told. It's very discombobulating in that way. The first hour is long. You got to earn the rest of the movie, I think. The dialogue is very much like a theater piece. It's kind of a cross between Pinter, Godot, and No Exit. It's that kind of existential exploration. It feels like the story that it's telling is not linear, but it, it has everything to do with memory and regret. And for me, it resonated in a way that was similar to Terrence Malick's Tree of Life, where you're not telling a traditional story, but you're getting like these visuals. Like when you're in a dream, you hear snippets of dialogue, you hear snippets, or when you're thinking of something, memory is a fickle thing where you think of it a certain way. I, I have a memory of the passing of my grandfather that may or may not be accurate. So I have tattoos. And when I got my second tattoo, I got it on my a certain place on my arm because that's where my granddad got it. And so I did it in homage. I was a little glug, glug, glug. I was a little drunk when I got it. I went through old photo albums when I was staying with my grandmother and I saw a picture of him with his sleeves rolled up. And sure as shit, the tattoo was on his other arm in a completely different spot. I had the memory of the tattoo, but like had completely gotten it wrong where he had it. And this movie, I think, is dealing in that, like, and the very title itself, I'm thinking of ending things. At the top of the movie, she has a thought, and it's about being in the relationship with her boyfriend. By the end of the movie, you get the sense that maybe this is about suicide. And because we see a character who who seemingly has nothing to do with the quote-unquote action of the movie, who may or may not have frozen to death. I'm conflicted by this movie because it seems to, to be ambitious in what it's trying to accomplish. It might be a little pretentious in its execution, but I can't dismiss the effect that it had on me. And for that reason, that's that's why I'm recommending it. I think it's this is going to sound preposterous. I think it's an important movie. I don't know exactly why. Right. I love that. I love it. Dean? Okay. So Brian has completely derailed the next thing I was going to say because I have a note here and I was going to introduce this by saying we've got our top three of, you know, of, of this year and we're going to talk about what we're looking forward to in 2021. And I thought I'm going to introduce a category called movies that I wanted to like, but I couldn't. <laughs> and, and, and top of the list was I'm thinking of ending things, right? It's like, what is not to like about the premise of this movie? It's got the amazing Jessie Buckley, which we covered in Fargo season four. She was Nurse Crazy Lady. She was in, what was it called? The Meltdown in Russia. She Chernobyl. Was in Chernobyl. Yeah, she was in Chernobyl. It's got David Fulis, who I love to death. I, I just love him in anything. And, of course, our countrywoman, Tony Collette. And I'm going to love this movie. And I just watched it last week, or tried to. The first 20 minutes of it is uh, Jesse and Jesse in a car, driving and talking. And you've inspired me to go back, Brian, and watch it again, because you just said, the first hour, you need to earn this movie. And I couldn't and I didn't. I just wanted to be out of it. I'm like watching it and I'm getting tense and I'm, I'm like, oh, let's get on with it. And I've seen some reviews that consider this a horror movie, like consider it a psychological thriller or not a thriller, a psychological horror movie. I don't know if I would go that far, but because of that very thing, that tension that is created in the course of the movie. Listening to you talk about it made me realize how much of an impact does it have on your opinion of a film? It's just into what mood you're in. So obviously I was not in a mood where I was content to just sit back and let the movie wash over me and let it talk to me. I was, come on, come on, come on. You know, I was impatient. Gosh, we've been 20 minutes in this car driving in the snow. It's like a 20 minute scene out of fucking Fargo. Come on, right? And I even, now I never do this. Never, ever, ever do I do this, but I did it. I skipped. I was watching it on Netflix 
notes and I went forward to like, let's get to the part with Tony Collette and David Theolis when they're having dinner because then there'll be some backwards and forwards and whatever, right? And I watched two minutes of it and I went, no. Nah. <laughs> and I bailed. Uh, so now I feel guilty because you've given it such a big rap and clearly there's a lot more to it than I thought. It's so. a, No, it's a slog. It's a slog for sure. Right. Yeah. No, your instincts are right on there. One person's slog is another person's mesmerization, you know. All right. So, Dean, so what do you have for us? All right. What I do have is a film that I'd only watched a week ago. Um, and I don't really have a whole lot to say about it. I can't go in depth on, on a whole lot of stuff, but it was just an incredible performance. And it was Bad Education starring Hugh Jackman with um, Alison Janney and Ray Romano. I missed that one. Yes, oh, tell us. Wow. It is such a fascinating film. I don't even know who made it, who directed it, who wrote it, nothing. But it's just about the performance of Hugh. So this is based on a true story. There was a book called The Bad Superintendent, I think it's called. Sorry, not a book, uh, an article in the, I don't know, like New York Times or Washington Post or whatever. So it's based on a true story and it's essentially a story of a guy who's hiding a lot of secrets. So Hugh's role is that he's a superintendent of a high school. He's seemingly very successful. His public school is winning everything academically, but he you know what? I don't even want to give it away. It's no, I'm not going to say anything. So he's got a whole bunch of secrets. I could watch Alison Janney reading her gas bills for the last 20 years. I don't care. She's just amazing. And Ray Romano in this is also great as a, we've discussed this before, comics doing serious turns. I loved, did you guys ever watch uh, Men of a Certain Age? That Ray did. No, it's no. it's on my list. Oh, it's so good. I've heard only great things about oh, it. Oh, Scott Bakula, Andre Brower. He is very underrated as a serious actor. It's not a huge role for him in this. It's all about Hugh. And I just want to say to people, just go and watch it. I'm recommending it, but I can't say a lot to recommend it because it unfolds. And if I was to tell you what happened, then you would know. But it's just outstanding. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I definitely want to watch that. That's fantastic. So I think the the most important thing I've seen all year is Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, but I don't want to talk about it right now because I, I'm hoping to get a guest to come on and talk about it who is not only an accomplished actor who's been in many, many things, but he's also a musician. So I want to wait and see if a friend of mine can come on to talk about it, who'd bring a really great perspective to it. So the proxy for Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, which everybody should see, is a collection of films called Small Acts by Steve McQueen. So these are, it's an incredible collection of five films, feature length films that he's he's released all at once. Talk about something I never thought I would be fascinated by, but they all concern the culture of the West Indies community in the UK. So immigrants who've come from Jamaica, Barbados, Caribbean islands, and their experience coming to the UK and experiencing horrific racism, systemic, you know, no matter what they try to do, whether they're trying to open a little restaurant to make goat curry, or they're trying to be a scientist, or they're trying to join the police force to help their community bridge that gap between the community and the police, no matter what they do, it's just it's just an incredible struggle. I mean, some of the films are better than others, but my favorite one is the third one called Red, White, and Blue, and it stars John Boyega, who was in all the Star Wars movies. He's incredible. He just reminds me of a young Denzel Washington with his gravitas and his soulfulness and his depth. But um, he's this young scientist who's a forensic scientist, and he decides that he wants to chuck it all. He's a PhD and he wants to join the police force in his little community and what that means and whether he's just a cog in a, in a gigantic wheel that he can't change. It's just fascinating. And, and I've, his relationship with his father, who has been wronged by the police many times, it, it's just an amazing collection of films. And you get steeped in the culture, the food, the music, all the, the language. It's just a wonderful, wonderful journey. are new types of human beings. They are not demoralized or defeated persons. They are leaders, but are rooted deep among those they lead. 
protagonist of our stories. Don't you think it's time things were different? As individuals, we have an impossible battle. As a collective, we stand a chance. Small Acts, a collection of five films. I'm on the fourth one. I haven't seen the last one yet, but it's it's really well worth it. So there we are. But let's go through our honorable mentions. So I'm sure you have a bunch of those. So go ahead. I'm going to give two just real quick. And the first is the West Wing Get Out the Vote episode that was on HBO Max, where the cast did a stage reading of one of the episodes of the West Wing, and they did it on a stage here in Los Angeles. And the reason why I I love it is the, the theater part of me. They didn't build huge sets. They had parts of that you could see, and maybe it's the Brechtian in me, but you could see the lines in the back. You could see the back wall. It, there was no artifice. You could see that you were in a theater, but they would have like little hints of location. It's like they used the things that make theater great, where we're activating our imagination, where they're giving us enough to like give us a sense of location and we're filling in the rest. And then it's just about the performances, the interactions between the the characters. Even though it was filmed and it was produced for television, to me, it absolutely celebrated the greatness that theater can be if it allowed itself to be. So I wanted to send that message out in this time of COVID. The second one is a little indie film called Sunlit Night, starring Jenny Slate, who I absolutely fucking adore. And it's set in Norway, I believe. But it's basically about this struggling artist who is not, she's not in her art. Like she's just anchorless and just not real happy. And so she takes a, an assignment in Norway where she's contracted to paint a barn yellow. I would just like to get out of here. Nils Auermann. I thought he was dead. He just fired his last assistant. Now he needs someone to paint a barn using only the color yellow. Okay, that's fine. Norway. Norway? Actual Norway? It's Zach Galifianakis is in this. Gillian Anderson is is in this. David Paymer. She's done. She, what a I mean, cast. she's. It really is, and it. She's in a part of Norway where at a time of year where it gets constant light. She's got really great comedy chops. She was on SNL for a season. She had a she had a horrible moment on SNL that. I don't think people remember anymore where she accidentally said the F word live on camera. But she does a lot of voiceover work. Listen to you saying the F word. Oh, I know. <laughs> from, from, from the guy who dropped the C-bomb on episode one. Oh, like, oh Jesus. The F -word. Did I really do that? Oh, it's terrible. But, she, yes, but she's done like broad comedy stuff like Parks and Rec and The Kroll Show. But she did dramatic turns on like House of Lies. She did a, a little indie called Obvious Child. I think that she is just an absolute gem and there's just a sweetness and an innocence about her that just plays on her face. And it's just, you know, it's not the most important movie that's ever been made. Just a quiet and lovely kind of story. That's great. Right? And what's it called and again? Just, what's it, just, what's... It's called Sunlit Night. Sunlit uh, Night. I saw it on Hulu. So those are my two honorable mentions. Fantastic. Fantastic. Dean, your honorable mention runner-ups? I can't get away from three, so I'm going to make it quick. First of all, The Invisible Man, starring Elizabeth Moss. So the premise is ridiculous, right? It's a remake of the, I think, 1950s, whatever, Invisible Man. But it's been redone, and, and I know, Lisa, that your co-host on Real Crime Profile, Laura, is a big fan of this movie because it's basically told as a story of coercive control. She's in an abusive relationship with her millionaire boyfriend who is a scientist studying light and photonics or something like that, and he apparently kills himself. But soon afterwards, she starts to experience all these weird goings-on, and it's an arc where, at first, oh, he's dead. Wait a minute, what's going on? Oh, my God, what's happening? I think he's still alive. 
I think he's turned himself invisible. And of course, all of her friends are going, you're absolutely crazy. And so the premise is ridiculous, but it's directed and written and directed by Lee Whannell, the, the Australian guy who was infamous for Saw. And it's just such... It's so well done. Uh, I just can't recommend it highly enough. And of course, uh, I loved her uh, in everything from Zoe Bartlett in The West Wing and Mad Men. And she was... Uh, she, and Handmaid's Tale. She, she's oh. completely unbelievable in Handmaid's Tale. <laughs> I have to guiltily confess I've never seen an episode of that. She spent some time down under doing Top of the Lake with Jane Campion and it was brilliant. So in lesser hands, this could have been just a, you know, by the numbers, woman in peril kind of thing. But the script and her... Elizabeth doing this, it's it's fascinating. As a rollicking good fun, I could recommend The Gentleman. Guy Ritchie returned to form, taking his uh, lock, stock and two smoking barrels sort of approach. And he's, he had a couple of things that I didn't really like so much, but fantastic cast. Uh, Matthew McConaughey, Charlie Hunnan from uh, Sons of Anarchy, Michelle Dockery from Downton Abbey. Lisa, you'll be pleased to know. Colin Farrell and Hugh Grant has the most amazing... He's actually... Hugh Grant's actually the star of this film. Hugh Grant plays this character in here that is just incredible. His, his name uh, is uh, Fletcher and I'm wondering if Guy Ritchie's taking the piss because he's a private eye, right? Fletcher, Fletch right? Uh, being Guy Ritchie, there's plots all over the place in, in, in the film. And one of them is a subplot of this character, Fletch, trying to flog his screenplay ar around the place based on all of the gangsters that are in the film. And they're all petrified that because he's using real names. And so it's sort of, it's a little bit Chili Palmer, uh, uh, Get Shorty. It's just a bunch of fun. Uh, I can't recommend that highly enough. And then something that I can't say that I enjoyed but I was transfixed like a mongoose and a snake was Uncut Gems uh, with Adam Sandler. And again, it's a, you know, a comedian in a serious role, but the whole movie has this sense of impending doom. Howard is a degenerate gambler. He lives and works in the New York's Diamond District in the Jewish community. <laughs> the opening sequence, yeah, we, we spoke about opening sequences. It's a sight to behold. It starts with this black gem being mined in Africa, and then the camera goes into the gem and then goes inside of Adam Sandler's colon. Oh. Yes, I said that, right? Because <laughs> he's having his colonoscopy because he's got, right. he's got cancer, right? So uh, it's, it's just... Oh, I thought you meant because he, like, stuffed the diamond up there to smuggle it into America. No, no, no he didn't, but it's, yeah, yeah, you can read into it what you like. Look, it's written and directed by the, uh, the Safdie brothers, who have a, a reputation for gritty fare. Previous to this, they did Good Time with Robert Pattinson, um, the story about a guy who's trying to get his brother out of a bad situation with a whole bunch of bad guys. But it's just, it's a slow motion train wreck. So every time when Sandler's character is confronted with a fork in the road, and it's obvious which is the right way to go, he invariably chooses the other way and you're going no no just don't do that but he just does i'm not a fan of adam sandler's comedies i'm afraid to say but i did love him in punch drunk love did you ever see that that was fucking amazing neither am i yeah i i i hate hate with a passion his comedies what was the golf one happy gilmore and anything like that i just vomit i just dis it's disgusting but when he decides to do something different He's completely lovable in Fifty First Dates. That's a rom-com. Yes, folks, you heard me right. I'm recommending a rom-com, right? Um, and uh, The Wedding Singer. He's endearing in The Wedding Singer. But other than that, no, I, I don't like it. So this is just, it's hard to watch this film. Everybody hates him. His ex-wife hates him. His daughter hates him. The people that he works with despise him. Even his mistress, he pays for a mistress, a young mistress and she barely tolerates him. It's a slow motion train wreck. It's hard to watch, but it's harder to look away. Great. Brian, did you have something to say about that? No, I was just going to say, I mean, I think that Adam Sandler is punishing us for not taking him seriously in Punch Drunk Love and Spanglish uh, with the fare that he has rolled out on Netflix. That's just my take on Adam Sandler. Okay, so real quick, my two, oddly enough, now that I look at them, they both have to do with time travel and immortality, but in two very different ways. I loved The Old Guard, which was on Netflix, and it starred Charlize Theron. It's a American superhero film based on the comic book by Greg Rucka, and it's these four undying warriors who've secretly protected humanity for centuries, and it's just a fun, fun romp. She's amazing in it. And similar in theme is a movie called Palm Springs, 
that stars Andy Samberg and Christine Milioti. Also, these two people who are stuck in some kind of time vortex where they're immortal and they keep traveling through time and they can't escape the same wedding reception. It just goes on and on and on. It's wonderful. So those are those are those are the best things I've seen in 2020. So uh, real quick, you guys, what are you looking forward to in 2021? Yeah, I mean, I, I got to be honest. I was kind of stymied as to like what I'm looking forward to. There just doesn't seem to be a ton on the horizon. I mean, I guess I'm excited about WandaVision. I'm curious like what that's going to be on Disney+. Plus. I'm actually really excited about Mr. Mayor. I hate network television. I hate it with a passion. I hate the lowest common denominator that it falls to. But The Good Place was one of the best comedies in the last five, 10 years. And a, the big, a big reason for that was Ted Danson. And He's Ted amazing, Danson, yeah. is, I don't know anything about this show, but the fact that Ted Danson is in it, I am all in on that. Like I, I think that he has reinvigorated his career over the last 10 years. He's fantastic. And then there's other stuff like uh, Mank on Netflix. It's out now, but I want to see Promising Young Woman, Carrie Mulligan. I think it's, jeez, God almighty. She looks intense. I really am looking forward to that. So. Oh, that's the only one. Yeah, that's the only one that I want to see is prom- that I'm looking forward to is Promising Young Woman. That's one I want to talk to. I want to talk with uh, my friend Laura Richards about <laughs> because it's all uh, revenge, revenge porn for course of control. Anyway, go ahead, Dean. Uh, Brian, do you remember the breakout role for Ted Danson? When was the first, if you cast your mind back, cast, I say, to two casting directors? What was the film that you first remember him in? There's no right or wrong answer, obviously. Film? Yeah, film. Like the first, I mean, like in a post-Cheers world, I three three men and a baby is like what I remember him of. He was, he was uh, Lisa? He was a model. I know that for a long time. And, and he was in some god-awful after-school show called Something About Amelia. Okay. But other than that, no. I could not take my eyes off him in one of the best neo-noir movies ever made ever, ever made. It also debuted, I think, certainly to the watching public, Mickey Rourke, but he was the lawyer in Body Heat. Oh, yeah. very good. Very good. Oh my God. You know, with, uh, oh God, then what are the leads? William Hurt. William Hurt. William and Hurt. Kath- and uh, Ka- Kathleen, Kathleen Turner. Turner. Folks, if you haven't seen this movie and you like film noir, if you just could grab your TV and turn it to black and white, you'd think it was made in 1940. It is a fucking amazing movie. Great script, great acting. Uh, Lawrence Kasdan directing, if I'm not wrong. I'm doing that off the top of my head, I think. But yeah, really, really cool uh, film. So uh, Ted, yeah, uh, at that point, I think it was post Cheers, but it was his first film role after television. And I'm like, wow, this guy can act. All right, so what I'm looking forward to in 2021, you guys are sort of, I have a whole bunch of stuff. I feel guilty. I'm... You do? Well, some of the things that I've already already watched, like I was looking forward to Ma Rainey. I want to watch The Sound of Metal, Mank, as Brian said. So some of it I feel like I'm on the brink of watching. Shortly. I just watched Bridgerton, the Shonda Rhimes petticoat and corset. I watched the whole thing. We got a link for it next. <laughs> so go ahead, Dean. <laughs> All right. Well, this one's a heads up. I guess for American listeners, you're going to have to keep an eye out for this. It's called The Dry, and it's an Australian-made movie starring Eric Banner, Genevieve Riley from Star Wars, and it's directed by uh, uh, Aussie veteran Rob Connolly and adapted from a best-selling book down here. Now, Banner's character is an Australian federal police officer who returns to his boyhood town after the murder suicide of one of his childhood friends and he's got to confront a whole bunch of ghosts including the mysterious death of a girl who drowned in a local waterhole where he was there with his friend when you've been lying about something for so long it becomes second nature And this place feels kind of empty And all of the breath fades with the light I 
think about the loveless fascination. You're thinking, Peg? What are you doing back in that town, boy? Under the milky tonight. So I've heard some stories about me. I've heard some. Wish I knew what you were looking You're reopening the investigation. You think you're going to get the truth in a town like this? I didn't know what you would find. When you've been lying about something for so long, it becomes second nature. And it's something quite peculiar. So it's a sort of a tense outback thriller. It's not a horror film like a, a Wolf Creek. It's it's not that. It, oh, right. oh, what a terrifying movie. Yeah, right. Oh, my God. <laughs> so it's not that. Horrific. Mr. In-Between fans will be pleased to see that the Aussie actor, uh, oh, I can't remember his name, but he was the guy that played the hitman Dave that kidnapped that kidnapped Ray and was going to kill him. And then Ray lets him go at the end of series one. Oh, and then the, Matt, Matt, the, Matt Nabel, Matt, who's Matt Nabel, wonderful. Yeah. He's, he's often, he's, he's here in the States. I think he's auditioned for me a few times. Yeah, he's wonderful. So he's in it. And interestingly, as a backstory, it was when the, when the book was released, it was almost immediately optioned by Reese Witherspoon's production company. And her partner at the time was Bruna Papandrea. So they optioned it and then, uh, of course, they did uh, Gone Girl and Wild and Big Little Lies and all that sort of stuff. And then subsequently, Papandrea left that production company and she started up her own called Made Up Stories. And so this is who's making it is uh, Bruna from Made Up Stories. And so, yeah, it's a quality sort of production. You know, she's now doing work with Donald Sutherland, David E. Kelly, Melissa McCarthy, Lily Rabe, Amy Brenneman, Tony Collette. And so keep an eye out for her. So I'm looking forward to this. I'll put the trailer in the in the links. It looks like a really good. The other thing that I'm really looking forward to, and that's in spite of the fact that I've never read the book and I'm not a big fan, is Dune. And I say that. Dune. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, Dune. Dune. Gotcha, okay, gotcha. Yeah. For Americans, Dune. Sorry. <laughs> so. I thought you said June. Well, I did. Okay. <laughs> that's how we say it. Okay. Um, okay. And only because it's directed by the guy that I think is the is the world's premier auteur at the moment, which is uh, Denis Villeneuve. He is a director that is just a cut above everybody else that's working at the moment. The test is simple. Remove your hand from the box and you die. What's in the box? Pain. You inherit too much power. You have proven you can rule yourself. Now you must learn to rule others. Something none of your ancestors learned. My father rules an entire planet. He's losing it. He's getting a richer one. He'll lose that one too. Arrakis is a death trap. Kill them. This is an extermination. They're picking my family off one by one. Let's fight like demons. An animal caught in a trap will gnaw off its own leg to escape. What will you do? can't imagine anybody else pulling off this film apart from him. So his technical skills are superlative and you only need to look at Blade Runner 2049 to see how well he can handle both complex stories but also have enormous technical skills and FX chops. So 2049, in my view, is one of the best films made in the last 20 years. Love that movie. Agreed. Yeah. How it didn't win 400 Academy Awards, I'll never know. Uh, Roger Deakins got a gong for his cinematography, which is deserved, but... Deserved. I mean, in the year that Get Out won Best Film, I was just appalled. Absolutely appalled. Get Out is a good Southern Gothic horror film, but it's pretty by the numbers, pretty straight up and down. Good performances, a great cast, but honestly, I would say Get Out is one of the least deserving films to win a Best Picture that I can recall. In the year that Blade Runner didn't even get nominated as Best Film, 
yeah, it appalls me. Anyway, so Denny, of course, had previously done Prisoners with Hugh Jackman and Sicario with Emily Blunt and Josh Brolin, Benicio Del Toro, and maybe even better than Chris. Everyone talks about Chris Nolan and his technical skills, but he does risk kind of disappearing up his own ass sometimes. But Denny always keeps it real and... Like I said, I'm not invested in the whole Dune franchise, but I am really looking forward to seeing what he does with this. The trailers look amazing. Well, there you have it, everybody. That is the best or at least the most important things we saw in 2020 and what we are all looking forward to in 2021. Thank you so much for listening and supporting our pod. We hope that you enjoy the holidays, that you stay safe, and that when you close the book on 2020, good things are ahead for you in 2021. My beasts, I want to wish you Happy New Year and thank you for coming along with me on this journey. We've just, we've just... We've just start. We've just started this journey, and we hope that you know those of you listening will continue to pass us along. We've got great plans for the new year, great shows to cover, great guests to have. Please head over to our Facebook page or Twitter and make any suggestions you like. If you want Instagram. us to cover. Or, and Instagram, thank you. If you want to let us know your thoughts, if um, Get Out was the worst <laughs> Oscar-winning yeah, film I'm, of all I'm time, dis- please engage I'm with disgusted. Dean on that one. Yeah. Um, bring it on. Yeah, bring it on, people. Engage with us. We want to know what you're watching, what you're binging, what your obsessions are, um, so that we can get obsessed too. So for now, this is Killer Casting signing off. Say goodbye, beasts. Bye, beasts. Laters. 2021, bring it on. Yeah, dude. Killer Casting is a concept created and produced by me, Lisa Zambetti, with audio engineering by Dean Laffin, logo art by the lovely April Laffin, website and big old fat opinions courtesy of Brian Allen Hill.